Welcome back to Russian Roulette, the podcast from the Russian Eurasia Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I'm your host, Jeff Mankoff, and I am joined in the studio today by Anna Ohanian, the Richard B. Finnegan Distinguished Professor of Political Science and International Relations at Stonehill College uh, outside of Boston in Massachusetts. Uh, she's got two new books. Uh, she's the editor of Russia Abroad, Driving Regional Fracture in Post-Communist Eurasia and Beyond. Uh, and she's the author of Network Regionalism as Conflict Management. Um, we're going to be talking today about the concept of regions, regional fracture uh, in the post-Soviet world, what it means, what can be done about it, and why we should care. It's a very wide-ranging conversation, uh, very uh, in-depth and informative, and I hope uh, you'll learn something from it. I certainly have. Let's get started. Welcome back to Russian Roulette. I'm joined in the studio today by Anna Ohanian, uh, who is the editor of the recent volume, Russia Abroad, Driving Regional Fracture in Post-Communist Eurasia and Beyond. Uh, Anna, welcome to Russian Roulette. Thank you. Thank you very much for the invitation, Jeff. So let's start off with this concept of regional fracture. What is it and why does it matter? Regional fracture at its core is a divide and conquer policy practiced by external hegemonic players in a particular geographic area, or it can also be practiced by uh, local elites. It could be um, practiced by um, non-state actors as well. Uh, but in contrast to divide and conquer policies, which have deep imperial roots and historical, they're historically evolved, a regional fracture is institutionally much more sophisticated. Um, it is usually applied within a specific geographic area. It rests on um, weak connections between, uh, within societies. Uh, these are fractured regions, are neighborhoods of weak societies, weak states, where governments have weak connections with their societies, which creates opportunities of regional fracture. Region-wide institutions are weak. Even if they are uh, regional institutions, they are captured by various groups inside, from inside the region or from outside, and they fail to deliver uh, region-wide governance needed for, for the people in the, uh, living in these regions. Okay, so since we're on Russian roulette, um, I'm going to ask you about regions that are fractured in the sort of Russian greater neighborhood. Um, and we're talking primarily about the Western Balkans, the South Caucasus, Central Asia, right? So in any of these regions, what, what is the origin of the, the, their fractured nature? You know, sure. why do we talk about, say, the South Caucasus as a fractured region? That's right. All of the regions that are covered in the book, uh, with an exception of the Middle East and the Balkans, were part of the Soviet Union. Um, and what we argue in the book is that these regions, fractured regions around Ukraine, South Caucasus, and Central Asia, that there is significant regional fracture by default, meaning that fractured, uh, regional fracture is inherited from the Soviet years, mm -hmm. and that there is a contemporary application of deliberate regional fracture uh, as a practice by Russia as a foreign policy strategy. So the way that the regional fracture, we argue, was built into the Soviet system, simply that all the peripheries were linked to the Kremlin, which was a top-down, very centralized machine, mm -hmm. and the immediate neighborhood ties between the republics were under developed. 
So it was more of a hub and spoke exactly. model. Exactly. That's a, the, that's the right way. And with the colla- which is pretty typical to imperial mm-hmm. system. So with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the conflicts that erupted were particularly devastating because there are very few mechanisms present in order to address them. Right. So if in the Soviet period, for example, disputes between Armenia and Azerbaijan would have been referred to the Kremlin, would have been referred to Moscow. Once the Soviet Union collapsed, there's no right. institution or mechanisms between Yerevan and Baku to fall back on. Exactly, exactly. And, and it's only um, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia has remained a player uh, in all of these areas, in all of most of its peripheries. But the structures of regional governance remain pretty shallow, sporadic, and that uh, complicated, uh, undermined any capacities of conflict management around singular conflict. So poor um, fractured regions institutionally in terms of values, in terms in terms of power, um, make it very difficult for building peace processes that are sustainable. Okay. So, but not all fractured regions have active conflicts. Right? No, necess- no, absolutely not. So, I mean, we, we could talk about Central Asia. Would, would exactly. that also sort of fall under exactly. the, this rubric? Yes. Yes. Actually, um, uh, Central Asia is referred to as a fractured region uh, for variety uh, for variety of reasons. The, uh, number one, that there are, there are still territorial disputes, internal issues of legitimacy. Um, ex- nation building is viewed at the expense of regional ties. And while there are variety of economic reasons for the countries in the region to cooperate, and there are regional organizations that exist, but uh, the existing regional models are described by analysts as illiberal regionalism. They're top down. So they do not, they're not really functional fully. They're not delivering a region-wide governance. Mm-hmm. So in that respect, yes, Central Asia is described as a fractured region. Okay. And we talk about regionalized governance. I mean, what does that actually look like? Uh, ideally, regionalized governance uh, would be cases when you have strong states, strong meaning that they have strong civil societies, uh, that they have strong local levels of governance, that there is a lot of local capacity to coordinate, to access governance across the borders. Mm -hmm. There is policy coordination between governments. And variety of global challenges now require regional cooperation, ranging from from could be climate change, food Uh security, terrorism, drug trafficking, all kinds of issues that will Mm -hmm. require deep regional cooperation. And fractured regions usually lack in such capacities of governance. So that's not necessarily the same thing as having a regional organization, right? So you can have regional governance without something like, say, the European Union or even Mm -hmm. ASEAN. That's right. Absolutely. And uh, Central Asia is a good example because it does have regional organizations um, which have very limited capacities in delivering, penetrating Mm -hmm. the society at the uh, the level of a community. And many regional organizations in developing countries are usually described as dictators clubs. Very often, these regional organizations are used to suppress uh, opposition movements domestically as opposed to function in order to deliver region-wide results, which sometimes may 
mean uh, giving up some of the state sovereignty. But when we do say uh, regionalism and regional integration, people do think of European Union. That's only one model that is not very, um, that is hard to reproduce and replicate in much of the developing countries. Well, it's having its problems in Europe, too. Exactly. But in the case of the developing countries in these fractured regions, the policy implications that follow from this is simply some modicum of regional orders that need to be established, mm-hmm. region-wide norms um, mm-hmm. of nonviolence, for example. So not necessarily institutions, but just some kind of, of norms or practices. Or exactly. Some, I, I guess we're talking of a continuum. Ideally, stronger, strong, resilient regions do have institutions that are functioning, that are uh, working in partnership with civil society, etc. cetera. Uh, but uh, at the, most of the regions, all of these regions that we cover have very little mm-hmm. uh, regional uh, uh, regional organizations or the ones that are exist are captured by mm-hmm. narrow elites. Okay. And so the, the, the benefits of this regional governance or overcoming the fractured nature of these regions in, in here is both in terms of providing better services, better ability to deal with problems that cross borders, like, say, migration and resource sharing and, and the like, but also because it makes these regions more resilient to outside domination, right? Exactly. So there are some very local reasons for this neighborhood connection, state-to-state connections. Um, in a globalized uh, world, these connections are important, and, and the regional dimension of statehood, of statecraft, is essential. Um, aside from this very immediate benefits for the states, uh, stronger, resilient regional re- resilient regions do uh, make uh, political interventions, or by essentially they constrain hegemonic. Uh, uh, clashes in such regions. Such regions, fractured regions, tend to be neighborhoods with weak states, mm-hmm. and the internal divisions of the states create regions that are open to military or political or institutional intrusion uh, by external powers, and which is which are not always in the interest of the states and the regions themselves. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like then Russia, in particular, among other post-imperial powers or hegemon, regional hegemons, has an interest in keeping these regions fractured. Can you talk a little bit about how Russia does that, what what Russia is seeking to do in the various regions that we've been talking about to make sure that they remain fractured and therefore subject to Russian influence? Exactly. So we do argue, while we, um, we do argue that Russia does practice regional fracture in its peripheries as a way to uh, maintain influence in this region. So regionally, this fracture has very tactical, very specific uh, need uh, application for Russia. It mainta- allows Russia to remain involved. Um, uh, and globally, uh, it also allows Russia to project influence globally uh, in its in its quest for uh, to be considered a hegemonic power. So Russia will become, uh, I- I- around its, its conflict beltway, Russia either has troops, its conflict party, as peacekeeping troops or is part of mediation and peace processes. So in all cases, Russia does maintain some influence. Um, Russia has been practicing the regional fracture for short-term purposes uh, for regions, but also projects uh, influence globally. 
and this strategy again is not is not a Russian problem. Is not a Russian strategy. Is not a new strategy. This has has been practiced by all imperial powers. Mm. Empires themselves actually thrived, or their functions they depended on their peripheries not to be connected right. to one another for imperial control. So this is simply a continuation uh, of previous prior imperial practices. Mm-hmm. But Russia, you see, doing this primarily in its own former periphery. Exactly. Russia does do that. And uh, some will argue um, that Russia is, uh, for example, Russia's role in the Balkans, which is one of the chapters in the Russia Abroad book. Uh, Because these neighborhoods, these fractured regions are fractured differently, um, there are a variety of dimensions of regional fracture. Because they're fractured differently, the openings that they prevent for Russia are quite different. Mm -hmm. Uh, In some cases, they will create an opportunity for direct military intervention. In other cases, Russian involvement will be limited to local level, uh, uh, just simply exploiting um, institutional weaknesses mm-hmm. uh, in, in internal politics. So it really, that's, we argue that because uh, the Balkans, South Caucasus, Central Asia, and Middle East are fractured differently, they will shape, they will determine Russian foreign policy in each of these regions. Mm-hmm. Now, we've seen various kinds of Russian intervention, not only in the regions covered in the book, but pretty far afield. Um, We talked about the European Union as an example of a non-fractured region. But one of the important developments that Europe has been facing over the last couple of years has been an increase in Russian activity aiming to divide, pull some countries closer to Moscow. Do you see Russia's intervention in EU Europe, places like, let's say, Hungary or Slovakia or the Czech Republic, as being driven by a similar similar, um, strategic approach to that which it uses in the the fractured regions we've been talking about? Uh, Yes, I do. Because this European Union, for example, or any other bigger economically uh, prosperous regional bloc um, does constitute an important part of global political economy, which has been developing within the Western rules-based liberal world order. And uh, Russian foreign policy has been directed in weakening that uh, America-dominated, Western-dominated rules-based world order. Uh, President Putin in Munich and uh, Lavrov, Foreign Minister uh, Mr. Lavrov, have been stating uh, on a regular basis that there is need for multipolar world order. And the world is moving Mm -hmm. to multipolar world order, uh, but it is unclear whether there's new regional models that are uh, emerging, how sustainable will they be, how prudent they will be in their neighborhood, and whether Russia can compete regionally, whether Russia-centric institutions can compete effectively with European Union, for example. Mm-hmm. So I guess it, it, it sort of sounds like regional fracture is not a permanent feature of the landscape necessarily, that regions that were once more tightly integrated can, to varying degrees, become fractured. Uh, And maybe that's what we're seeing in the periphery of the European Union right now, although it's, it's still an open question which direction that's going to go. What about going the other direction, though? Is it possible to think about regions that are currently fractured, like 
the Western Balkans or the South Caucasus or Central Asia in some way becoming more connected or becoming unfractured? And what would it take to do that? Um, yes, that's a that's an important framework uh, in which to think about this question. Uh, regional fracture and regional resilience. It is a it is a continuum, and but that the at the core of regional fracture or uh, regionally resilient uh, systems areas is that they are geographically contained. So they are uh, between the relationship between territorial approximate states. And in all cases, immediate regional ties are critical, uh, have enormous developmental impact mm -hmm. for the communities. What has been happening in the post-communist Eurasia, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia has been trying to reclaim the territories it's lost, trying to peel, trying to reclaim regions, but the West has been trying to peel away individual states in its orbit. Mm -hmm. And countries themselves have been participating in this fracturing. Very often, countries have been favoring one or the other mm -hmm. in most cases at the expense of their immediate regional ties. And this is where uh, develop, uh, serious issues of development are left unaddressed. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the... NATO and the European Union taking steps to integrate some of the Western Balkan states, but not others, actually contributes to this process of regional fracture. Exactly. One respondent actually describes the states that were not integrated into European Union as sitting ducks, mm -hmm. <laughs> meaning that whether European Union intended or not, but uh, giving accession to some countries in regions and not others which is what Russia has been doing as well, has created mm -hmm. uh, created wedges within the regional fabric. At the same time... It's I, made it into a geopolitical uh, confrontation. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, um, uh, European accession, for example, and European Union, while it, in most of my uh, interviews I would ask to what extent in its uh, plans of adding new countries, European Union has been paying attention to the immediate regional fabric of these countries. It has always been there, but not definitely did not have the level of strategic importance mm -hmm. that individual uh, bilateral relations with these countries. And countries themselves have been fearful, Balkan, the Balkans, mm -hmm. uh, Western Balkans in particular, countries that wanted to join European at some European Union at some point were worried that if they engage with their neighbor, they will be stuck in their immediate neighborhood forever. They will not be let into the European mm -hmm. Union as, uh, uh, at all. So European Union really... Uh, could have done a much better job in communicating the multi-faceted nature of weaving the original fabric. Or um, one thing that I did not mention in a talk, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, the Western donor communities perpetuated the existing regional fracture that was built into the Soviet system mm -hmm. by engaging with the countries one by one, engaging in state building. Almost very little, if any, went into creating connections between the countries themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the challenges is that political leaders in these countries themselves often have different visions for what their future is going to look like. So again, to take the Western Balkans, leadership in a country like Slovenia or Croatia from the very beginning made clear that the goal was to move west. Uh, and both of those countries became part of NATO and the European Union quite early on. 
um, political leadership in Serbia was a little more unsure and I think is still unsure which direction it wants to go or if it wants to go in any direction. And I think for policymakers, part of the challenge is do you sort of allow Serbia's uncertainty to dictate what you're going to do vis-a-vis a country like mm-hmm. Slovenia or Croatia. Um, and the decision of, of European and, and NATO leaders was no, that they weren't going to do that, that they were going to move ahead with the um, accession process for, for Croatia and Slovenia. But one of the consequences has been this issue now that Serbia and some of the other countries in the Western Balkans remain this sort of mm-hmm. gray zone. That's right. I agree. I agree. I fully agree. Um, and I guess the other issue here is what is it that makes a region? Um, because you know, there have been some people who've argued that one of the things that differentiates Croatia and Slovenia from the other post-Yugoslav states is that they're primarily Western Western Christian, um, that is Catholic and Protestant. They were part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. They were mm-hmm. never under either Ottoman or, or Russian control. Um, and that therefore they're sort of returning home, whereas it's a question of is a country like Serbia really returning home if it decides to if Europe seeks to integrate it? Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a that's an important narrative that and that definitely plays a role in terms of issues of identity and values, which is a key ingredient to building regions. Uh, at the same time, though, there are other, in addition to values and identities, there are also very real economic forces and drivers mm-hmm. that create imperatives and ne- that necessitate regional in- the creation of immediate neighbor- neighborhood fabric between societies. And regardless whether states have been part of recently in the past century been part of a particular empire, which would be much of Eurasia, or let's say Latin American countries that have experimented, received independence much earlier and experimented with regional integration sooner, in all cases in the context of a globalized world, the need for effective regional statecraft, uh, I argue, constitute an important dimension of state building. Um, mm-hmm. and states often, have to recognize that they the, belong exactly. to a region. So, and they also have to value uh, very often uh, states that might have very limited uh, resources to support diplomatic activities will send their best diplomats to the Western Brussels capitals, not to their neighbor. Exactly. They will not send their best, di- but they have to send their best diplomats to their next door neighbor in order to cultivate this bottom-up regional ties. And in the, I hate to be um, jargony academically, but there is a this phenomenon called new regionalism, mm-hmm. which is different, which is a, a kind of later generation processes, uh, new generation processes of region building, in which case uh, the drivers of region building does not come, the, the drivers are not from the top, from the governments in terms of fine, signing mm-hmm. treaties or an agreement, sort of hard regionalism, but they bubble up from below because the businesses, small scale businesses, for example, mm-hmm. civil society, professional networks, environmental mm-hmm. groups, Right. do need to talk to one another. So this is an another kind of uh, force, another mm-hmm. direction that bubbles up from below. Right, because people need to manage things like transboundary river flows exactly. or you know, being able exactly. to trade with people on the other side of the border. Exactly, yeah. Um, is that a phenomenon that we're seeing more of in, in some of the regions we've been talking about, like the South Caucasus? Uh, in South Caucasus, which is uh, one, the, the chapter is authored by Laura, uh, Lawrence Brewers, 
the it is considered it is definitely a fractured region. It is fractured in terms of values, mm-hmm. uh, the, in terms of authoritarian and democratic um, identity uh, identity issues. But at the same time, they do share uh, they do share historical legacy, being part of Soviet Union, mm-hmm. so which also created a lot of cultural similarities uh, in that part of the world. So there is a lot to on which to build. The problem when I started my research on regionalism on my last book, Network Regionalism, um, people would say South Caucasus is not a region. Very often people think that regions are there to be discovered. You're Mm -hmm. either born into a region, (laughs) quote unquote, or you're not. Uh, But what we argue is that regions are constructed. Geography does matter, but Mm -hmm. the regions, regional ties are constructed, cultivated, and grown all of which requires deep diplomatic capacities on the side of the elites and the recognition that there is value in in building uh, good connections with your neighbor. Yeah. There's an ideational component to it, too. Mm -hmm. People have to come to believe or be convinced that they belong to a region or that they should create some kind of of regional identity. Again, you know, we were talking about historical legacies and how in the Soviet Union, everything was mediated through Moscow. If that's the case, if that's the legacy that you've inherited in a place like the South Caucasus, it's not necessarily natural to think that we need to build stronger ties Mm -hmm. among other people who are geographically proximate because that's not the, mm-hmm. the history that we have. That's right. There is definitely an idea, uh, going back to your point about uh, ideational issues, people do like, I mean, interviews I would, I'd, I've done in South Caucasus or in Western Balkans, the pool, the European identity, where are Europeans, mm-hmm. right? So there is that big ideational value-driven pool to this big, uh, um, uh, f- very distant capitals and building immediate connections is not viewed as functional, as necessary. I guess what we try to do in this book is that to demonstrate the strategic value, Mm -hmm. very real strategic value for the states as well as external powers in in building immediate regional neighborhoods. Yeah. Well, as much as academics talk about nations as being imagined communities, maybe in some sense regions are imagined communities of a slightly different kind. That's a very good point. I, I have to think about that more. Yeah. So how are we doing in terms of of region building in the Western Balkans, the South Caucasus, and Central Asia? Are they becoming more region-like? In all cases, people have to uh, drive the process from the bottom up. So that's definitely something on the on the side of the donor community. There has not been done enough in uh, creating in, in incentivizing immediate connections between neighbors. And I refer I refer to this already. There has been this chase for patrons from inside the region, and the Western and the world and Russia have been trying to peel away individual countries to their respective orbits. Um, but in terms of building immediate regional connection, it it is a process. It really I don't think we've been doing terribly well. Civil societies, in some respects, are way ahead. In South Caucasus, for example, uh, there is a rock festival Mm. that happens once a year, I believe, in Georgia, in which Armenian rock groups, Azerbaijani uh, groups and Mm -hmm. Georgian, and as well as groups from all the world come in. Or they are other women's groups Mm -hmm. um, from all three countries that have been meeting. uh, So there's a lot of civil society work, a lot of civil society level activity that is happening. But the the formal political processes have been hopelessly fractured. Mm -hmm. Peace processes are built around individual single conflicts. And 
there has been par- there have been parallel tracks at the civil society and at the elite level that have not been connected. And I would argue that in order to move forward to find durable solutions to some of this uh, increasingly protracted conflict, uh, regional neighborhoods need to be attended to, need to be addressed in order to create openings, uh, in order to uh, remove insecurities and making uh, and make uh, concessions uh, politically more palatable on all sides. Mm -hmm. And so I guess that leads to my last question, which is, well, what do we do about it? What are the incentives that the West or the United States can can offer to encourage some of these processes at the political level? Uh, the West can do a lot in terms of being sensitive to any policies that they do that implement in this region, most of which are bilateral. It's much easier to do for donors, for example, mm-hmm. to do a project in Armenia and Georgia separately right. as opposed to do a single project that will require deep coordination between the two countries and ideally mm-hmm. between the three countries. Right. Yeah, it's going to say much less involving exactly. Azerbaijan as well. Yeah, in Azerbaijan, um, in the case of South Caucasus, in my interviews, um, and actually I don't even have to pull from my interviews, um, the Ali government has been on record as essentially saying no contact with Armenia mm-hmm. until uh, there is a resolution to Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, but that is, that's a dead end, uh, I've argued in my scholarship. So um, I don't know, perhaps, and th- this is a good time to, to make an argument to Azerbaijan to unlock the region mm-hmm. and allow to for this region-wide projects to unfold, uh, as the policy as the politicians are crafting, thinking, organizing, building diplomatic structures for singular conflict. In this case, Nagorno-Karabakh peace process. Um, so uh, people, I think, are a lot more ready mm-hmm. in building uh, regional connections than the elites. And there's a lot of curiosity within mm-hmm. the society uh, because people grew up together, but they, yeah. uh, we have a generation that they don't know, that they have, mm-hmm. do not remember of friendly relations with Azerbaijan. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I think probably more so in, in Azerbaijan than, than Armenia now, but political leadership is largely held over from a previous right. generation and doesn't have the same incentives maybe to, to focus on That's regional right. cooperation. This is a good time to make an argument that uh, it is possible to craft original approaches and unlock the region because the regional fabric is altered in South Caucasus. With Armenia's Velvet Revolution, there are now two countries that are democratically inclined or moving towards democracy. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of research that documents that once in a region, when democratic polls are strengthened, that increases the cost of aggression in the region. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a good time. Uh, uh, my argument is that Aliyev regime has the... is. Is should be interested uh, right now to think about peace processes differently, um, just simply because this is a different region right now in terms of its political values and institutions. Well, maybe that's a, a hopeful sign for the future. We can uh, keep that's watching right. and hoping. That's right. Uh, Anna, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for hosting. Okay, thanks for joining us. That is all for our show today. Uh, There is a link to Anna O'Hanian's bio uh, in the show notes, and there are also links to her two uh, recent books that we discussed. 
If you haven't already, uh, please do subscribe to Russian Roulette on iTunes, uh, where you can also leave us a rating and a review. And if you don't use iTunes, you can check us out on Google Play or SoundCloud. Uh, And again, reminder, spread the word, let your friends know about us. Um, And also, let your friends know uh, that they should send us mailbag questions, and you should send us mailbag questions too. Uh, Send them to rep at csis.org and put the words Russian Roulette in the subject line. We'll do another mailbag uh, session here on Russian Roulette soon. You can also follow us on Twitter at CSIS Russia, uh, or you can follow me at Dr. J. Mankoff. Uh, And of course, as always, big thank you to everybody who works so hard every two weeks to make the podcast happen. Uh, That includes our producer, research associate, and program manager, Cyrus Newland, and the whole CSIS external relations and iLab team. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.